It's an honor to be here again this morning with you. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to stand with me and follow along as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 4. Uh, We started on this last week uh, in this little section this morning by God's grace and uh, learn what the Apostle Paul uh, wants to teach us about giving concerning the collection. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Paul here writing to the church in Corinth says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive... I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Let's pray. God, we do want to learn this morning um, about giving. We want to learn what a joy it can be to give back to you a portion of what you have so generously given to us. And so I pray this morning as we study through these verses that you would stir in our souls um, an understanding of your generosity and let that motivate us then to worship you. And part of that worship is to give back to you with our financial resources. Help me this morning as I teach to teach well uh, that we could understand it with clarity um, and with understanding. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The story is told of a mother who wanted to teach her daughter a moral lesson. So she gave the little girl a quarter and a dollar for church. Put whichever one you want in the collection plate and keep the other for yourself, she told the little girl. When they were coming out of the church, the mother asked her daughter which amount she had given. Well, said the little girl, I was going to give the dollar... But just before the collection, the man in the pulpit said that we should all be cheerful givers, and I knew I'd be a whole lot more cheerful if I gave the quarter. So I kept the dollar for myself. I think there's some truth that we can learn uh, from that story. The fact is this. There is a deep-rooted desire within every one of us, I think, to hold tight to the things that have been given to us and to really want to bond with those resources that we think we can't can't do without. And we tend to be a little bit selfish instead of generous. It's a result of the fall. It's one of the things that was passed down to us as part of our sinful nature uh, to be naturally greedy, to be naturally uh, clinging uh, to what is not our own. I think this is the reason why our Lord talked often about money, um, in particular about generosity in the Bible. I haven't checked this fact for myself, but I've read that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of every six verses deals with money. And of the 29 parables that Christ told, 16 deal with a person and his money. It's prevalent. It's something that we all deal with. It's something that's common to every single one of us, our money. 
It's common in Scripture. It's common uh, among the disciples. It's common among the pages of Scripture. And so I think it's something that we ought to talk about, and we ought to talk about it uh, with honesty and really through the lens of God's Word. The attractiveness of great wealth in our lives is a lure that Paul wrote specifically to Timothy about. And here's what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is telling Timothy about this idea of great wealth, and he says this, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And catch this, this is what Paul is getting ready to drive home to Timothy. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And so to combat that temptation... Uh, Paul goes on later in the chapter and he tells Timothy this. He says, Timothy, here's what I want you to tell people who have great wealth. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is keenly aware of the temptation of money and the inclination of the human heart, and he seeks to combat that problem. And I love the approach that Paul takes when he gets into 1 Corinthians, because it would have been very easy for Paul just to lamb blast this church in Corinth and say, you need to be giving, you need to be giving more, and just sort of hound away at that. But the approach that he takes, he comes at it from the angle of worship. And I love this. We talked about this a little bit last week. But Paul flows from the doctrine of worship in chapter 15 straight into the duty of giving in chapter 16. If you look back there um, in chapter 15, Paul's talking about the wonderful doctrine of the resurrection. And there he says, because we have resurrection and because of the generous nature of God, we've been given life, We've been given the riches of heaven. We've been given eternal life that begins now and will extend all through the ages to come. Paul says this life that we have been given makes certain that death will have no victory over us, that death will have no sting over us, and the promises of the comforts of heaven await us. Jesus himself said, I go and I leave and I prepare mansions for you in heaven. And I'm convinced that when you and I get to heaven, we're going to walk around the rooms that have been prepared for us. And I hope that we get a glance, just sort of a glimpse of the shacks that we lived in here on earth. And we look back and we say, how did I ever find any glory in that? Compared to the riches that are awaiting me and now I found when I arrive in heaven. 
And so Paul, in chapter 15, is trying to bring to mind to his readers to say, remember what all you've been given in heaven. You didn't purchase those things. You didn't earn those things. You didn't merit any of that. The only reason that you get any of those things is because of the abounding love of our Father in heaven. That Father who looked down on your helpless state and mine and said, they need help. They live for money. They covet. They're greedy. They're selfish. And I'm going to send my son and he's going to die for their sins. That son of, of God, Jesus Christ, who never once coveted when he was on earth, and instead he went to the cross and he died. In fact, Philippians 2 said, not only did Jesus not covet, but he already had the riches of heaven. And he laid them aside. He emptied himself, the verse says. And he came down to heaven. And he took on the form of a man, the form of a servant. And it was from that posture that Jesus served us and he went to the cross and he died for us. That posture of humility and of being poor, of laying aside the riches of heaven. Jesus died for our greatest problem. And that wasn't a financial problem, although that's certainly something in the equation, but Jesus died for our sin problem. The sin problem that often drives some of our financial problems. And Jesus rose on the third day. And when he rose, he had victory over those sins that you and I struggle with. He rose and he was the king of kings and he was the Lord of lords and he ascended back to heaven where now not only does he have the riches of heaven, but he has the name that is above all names. The name at which one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you and I today by faith believe in that, then God says, I forgive you of, our sin, of your sins. And when you repent, there's forgiveness there. And all of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians becomes a reality for us that we then have the resurrection. We are promised this new body that's going to come out of the grave and we get to enjoy the benefits of heaven forever. And it's from that magnificent truth of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that Paul goes into verse 16, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 16, he says, Now, concerning the collection, which as you see flows from an attitude of worship toward a God who would do so much for me, now, concerning the collection. Last week I told you that there are at least seven principles that we can draw out of these first four verses in chapter 16. We only covered two of them last week, and Lord willing, we'll cover uh, the other five this morning. Last week, we said, number one, our giving is purposeful. When we give, it's purposeful. And you notice uh, there in verse one, he says, they're collecting for the saints. And so we said, um, there are at least three reasons why we collect money in a church. Number one, Paul mentions here, and that is for the poor. Uh, the saints that were back in Jerusalem were very poor. It was for the poor, he also, back in 1 Corinthians 9, talks about collecting in order to support those who teach and preach among you. So the elders and the pastors and the teachers who serve among us, uh, we support them. And then also, he said, uh, we support uh, the rest of the saints in one way in that money that you give comes back to you in the form of education, in the form of uh, Christian literature, a place to gather uh, to worship. And so we said our giving is very purposeful. We don't just give 
so that money just sort of sits around and gets dust on it. We give because it has a purpose. That was uh, last week. And we also said last week that we give regularly. And that is we give on the Lord's Day. Notice in verse 2, he says, on the first day of the week. And I think when Paul was talking about that, he's tying this idea of giving directly with the concept of worship because we come together on the Lord's Day to worship and break bread. And this morning, we're going to do that a little later. We have communion. We'll break bread and drink the cup together. and We worship together. And it's on that day, on a regular basis then, Paul says, you need to be bringing your contributions into the church. It was on the Lord's Day that they worshipped. It was on the Lord's Day uh, that Jesus came out of the tomb. It was on the Lord's Day that the church was born at Pentecost. And so it's on the Lord's Day where this whole idea of worship becomes a regular reality. And Paul says, now I want your giving to reflect that when you come together. So those are the two that we looked at last week. So what's this week? Well, you have your message notes. You can glance ahead. They're all in there. and you'll, you'll see them in order. But the next one is this. Our giving should be universal. Universal. Look at verse 2 again. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Each of you. That doesn't really exclude anybody, does it? It's a universal concept. It's everybody, all, everyone. I remember when I was growing up, my first real job... I was delivering newspapers in Kennelberg. Um, I Some of you remember those days uh, when the newspapers were delivered by the little newspaper boy, right? And he would strap on this bag around his shoulder and he'd jump on his bicycle and he would go around town and he would deliver the newspapers. Um, that, that was my first real job. Um, I specifically remember uh, dreading the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, because the newspapers were just pregnant with ads, getting ready for Black Friday. And in fact, I remember I, I was probably had the most unthankful heart at Thanksgiving because I knew I was going to have to go deliver these heavy newspapers and I'd have to make a couple of trips. Um, but that was my job. I would get paid once a month. The lady would sit down. We'd divvy out um, all of the newspapers I delivered, what I was old. I would get paid. Uh, and after she left, mom and dad would say, okay, Sean, 10% to the church, 10% in savings, 80% to spend. That was the rule in our house. We'll talk about those percentages in a little bit, but at least the concept was there. Each of you, the Bible says, is to lay something aside and store it up. And mom and dad wanted us to know from little up that when you get a job, you're included in the each of you. It's universal. And so each week, then I would go to church and I would put in part of my money. That was just kind of the deal. So even at that tender age of 12, mom and dad wanted me to get this concept. That's what Paul's driving away here. Everybody is to participate in this. Now, why is that important to Paul? I think it's important to Paul because giving is meant to be in the act of worship a unifying ministry. If everybody is giving, there's a sense in which we're all in this together. We're all participating in this together. We come together and we sing together, we pray together, we study God's word together, and we give together. 
It unifies us. It brings us together with this common cause. That is one of the reasons, by the way, uh, that we still pass offering plates around the church. Uh, some places you go that's considered very old-fashioned uh, to pass the offering plate. So I'll tell you, uh, we do it not because it's old-fashioned or because we want to hang on to, to a tradition, but we do it for a very specific purpose, and it's this. As the offering plate is passed around, there's a sense in which I don't know what you give and you don't know what I give, but I know that we all give. Together, we're in this. It's an act of worship to God together, corporately. And so we don't set up boxes in the back of the church where you drop it in. We pass the offering plate. and We hear music as we're, as we're giving, but it's meant to bring us together. It's meant to unify this. We don't make a show out of it. I hope you're not one of those folks that holds coins really high like they did in the, in the temple uh, box and drop them in so they clank as they fall. Into. No, we don't do that. But we all give together. We're in this together. It's a beautiful thing, really, if you view it from that perspective, from that idea that we're worshiping together. So each of you, it's meant to be universal. Not only does Paul say it's meant to be universal, but the next thing he says is that your participation should be systematic. Systematic. Look again at verse 2. Most of these come out of verse 2. Verse 2, he says, on the first day of the week, so there's the regular concept, each of you, there's the universal concept, um, is to put something aside and to store it up. Uh, Notice how systematic, how thought through Paul is explaining this. He says, every week, you ought to be thinking about, hmm, it's getting close to the Lord's day. I need to be setting something aside and storing it up so that I am able to give when the offering plate is passed on Sunday morning. It's very methodical. I'm planning ahead. It's it's very disciplined. Paul does not have in mind this kind of off-the-cuff mentality of, oh no, here comes the offering plate, and I'm scrambling to kind of see what I have on my person to dump in the offering plate. Paul says, no. Every week, each of you, universal, should store up and set it aside. It's thinking through this ahead of time so that we're prepared when we gather corporately. Different people have different methods. I'll tell you, uh, I'll give you one suggestion that works for me, and maybe it'll work for you. I generally pay our household bills on Friday. Uh, I gather kind of all of our receipts and and the bills that come in the mail, and I sit down at the computer, and I write out the checks uh, for all the different things that need to be paid that week. And in that process, I think about, hmm, it's Friday. In a couple days will be the Lord's Day. And I go ahead and I write out that check right then, what I'm going to give on the Lord's Day. And I take that check. If you come into my house, I'll tell you where you can steal it. You come into my house on Saturday or Sunday morning, and that check is laying right on top of my Bible, right on the kitchen counter, just waiting for me to pick it up as I head then into church on Sunday morning. It's very methodical. I'm thinking about it. It's very systematic. And when Paul says here, each of you should lay something aside and store it up, that's what he's getting at. It becomes part of your routine. Now, maybe yours will look different than mine, and that's fine. But that it becomes a regular habit in our life. It's a routine thing that's happening. 
Now, I want to point something out with this verse because um, you'll get a little pushback on this verse. And I'll, I'll give you the heads up what the pushback will be and then we'll talk about it. The pushback that you'll sometimes get on this verse is this. Hey, Sean, the Bible says, Paul said, store something up and lay it aside. He didn't say take it to the church. He said just store it up and lay it aside. And it's true that Paul is, in one sense, thinking about a personal account, a personal place where we're kind of storing this up and preparing to give it to the Lord's work. There's really no mention directly of bringing it to the church in this verse. But I think it's implied. And let me give you a couple reasons why I think that Paul is, in his mind, assuming that they would bring it to the church. Number one is this. When his readers the Corinthians, would read this letter, they came out of a very pagan background. And part of that pagan worship, any time you went to an idol temple, there at the door to the temple was a collection box where you would put in your, your donation to that idol as you went into worship. That was from a pagan background. The Jewish believers... Had this, Jewish believers had the same concept, but it was in the temple setting. There was a, a collection box in the temple where they would go in and they would place their offerings there in the temple box. So I think, I could be wrong, but I think that when Paul's readers heard this idea of laying aside and storing up, they would have just thought automatically, well, yeah, because later there's that collection box and we take and and we put our money into that collection box, box. I think that's one reason. The other reason why I think that it's implied here that the money is coming to the church is if you glance down at the end of verse two, Paul says this. He says, I'm telling you all these things so that there will be no collecting when I come. So there'll be no collecting when I come. Now listen, if every person was storing up and just laying aside at home in his own personal account, when Paul showed up at the door at Corinth, they were going to have to do some collecting, weren't they? They were going to have to run around and collect all this individual storing up and bring it together. And Paul said, when I arrive, I I don't want any collecting to be happening. I want it to be already there. So it's ready to go to the saints in Jerusalem. So I think what Paul has in mind is, when I tell you Corinthians, and by implication us, to store up and lay aside, Paul has in mind that yes, it would come out of our personal contribution, but it would come to a central collecting place. It would come there to the church. On the Lord's Day, when they came to worship. So I think it's biblical that we bring our offerings into the church and we put them in a collective account then to be used corporately, to be used purposefully, specifically uh, for the church's giving. Okay? So our giving is to be purposeful, regular, universal, that includes everyone, systematic, and then fifthly, Paul addresses how much is to be given. I love this portion. He says, each of you, your giving, should be proportional. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. And look at that next little phrase. As he may prosper. As he may prosper. Did you know that in the New Testament, 
there is never a mention of a specific amount or a specific percentage that is to be given to the church in the New Testament. There's no amount or percentage that is specified. And so what a lot of people will do is they'll point back to the Old Testament and they'll say, well, in the Old Testament, it says that you should give a tithe. And by tithe, what they mean is a tenth. Because in the Old Testament, a tithe meant a tenth of your resources. And that's fine. That's okay if you want to do that. Um, But the thing that you need to understand whenever you start talking about tithes from the Old Testament is that a tithe does mean a tenth. But in the Old Testament, there were three tithes that were were required. The first tithe, 10%, was required every year, and it went to support the work of the Levites. That was the one tribe that didn't have any other inheritance, no land inheritance. So the tenth that was given was to support them. That was the first tenth. The second tithe, another 10% that was supposed to be given, went every year into the fund to fund the national celebrations of Israel when they would have their large festivals of Passover and the uh, tents, the booth, the festival of booths. That money would go to support those large festivals. That was the second tenth. The third time a tenth was required was every three years they would give this third tenth and that tenth would be used to support the widows, uh, to support the orphans or the fatherless and to support the sojourners, the people that just traveled through. So if you take all of those together, all three, 10, 10 every year and a 10 every three years, if you add all those together, you come up with 20, about 23% per year is what the Israelites were commanded to give. So when some people hang their hat on the fact that I give 10%, because that's what the Old Testament says to give, I challenge that a little bit. Because if you want to hang your hat on the tithe, the tithe is really 23%. And that's a bit of a shocker uh, to some folks because they're not used to that. Okay, so here's the reality. When you get to the New Testament, in the New Testament, all giving to the Lord is to be free will giving and it is completely discretionary. The only requirement that Paul gives here is that it be according to how you prosper. According to how you prosper. So what are we supposed to do? Well, every week when we sit down uh, systematically, regularly, universally to prepare what we're going to give on Sunday morning, we should be saying to ourselves, hmm, How has God prospered me this week? How has God given to me this week? And the rationale then would say there are some weeks when I can give a lot more. The Lord has prospered me a lot more. There are other weeks when I can't give as much. The rationale would also say this then. The rich among us, those whom God has prospered very much, would naturally be giving more than the poor that are among us. The burden of the collection should never rest solely upon the poor. There should never be a Christian who has to pass a meal by in order to give because a rich Christian isn't giving according to how he's prospered. That's the rationale then that goes behind this. In Luke, 
It says, to whom much is given, much is required. So that rationale says, if God has prospered you much, then naturally you would be giving much uh, into the offering plate. Now that doesn't mean, by the way, that a poor person can't give a large percentage. When Alex was reading the call to worship this morning, he read the story about the widow lady who gave her last two coins. How much, what was her percentage? Well, she gave 100%. She gave it all. So it's not to say that a poor person can't give a large percentage, but Paul is saying, according to how you prosper is how you would give. And so um, the New Testament then teaches a cheerful and abundant giving, not this strict counting out exactly 10% of everything I have. That is what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. They were coming along and they were taking their spices. And if you can imagine, they were sort of scattering their spices out on the table and with a little uh, blade sort of separating out exactly 10% of the spices. I mean, they were precise. And Jesus comes along and he says, you have missed the point. The bigger things, justice and mercy, those are what's most important. And your giving then reflects that. And it's a generous giving. Why? Because God has been so generous to you. And as he prospers you, then you give back to him. It's a generous love from the Father that flows through me and back to him. Many of you are acquainted with a guy named George Mueller, a wonderful saint from the past. And he once said this, God judges what we give by what we keep. I like that. God judges what we give by what we keep. And here's the trouble that I see. And this applies just as much to me as it applies to you. Too many saints, the more they earn, the bigger they live. Far too often, when you and I get a raise at work, Uh, get an increase in salary, get an increase in hourly wage, the first thing that goes to our mind is, oh, great, what can I buy now? What can I do with this extra money that's coming in? And far too often, friends, we end up spending it on ourselves. And we end up spending way too much on ourselves. I like how one guy said it. He said, the trouble is, is that too many people are spending money they can't afford for things they don't need to impress people they don't like. (laughs) I think it's our nature. It's, It's something we were born with that when we're given more, we tend to up our standard of living And instead of thinking, how can I give more to the Lord's work with this way that God has prospered me? We tend to think, how can I spend this on me? I know that that challenge is for you because that challenge is also for me. It's a struggle for me too. God convicts me and I hope that he convicts you Maybe you're giving how you prosper. Or maybe God is convicting you, saying, you know, you've been pretty diligent in, in the same amount every week, um, but it's not really what I'm calling you to. And if that's the case, if God is convicting you, not Sean, but if God is convicting you, then repent and change. 
Do something different next week. Follow Christ. All right, so there's two more. We'll cover these uh, fairly quickly. Last two, number six. Our giving should be freely. We should give freely. At the end of verse two, Paul says this. We do all these things so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now listen, I want catch this. If I every week am at home getting ready for the Lord's Day worship and I'm setting aside some amount of my prospering that God has given me and I'm doing it at home, then guess what? At home, nobody is manipulating me. Nobody's looking over my shoulder, except for God, but no human is looking over my shoulder. There's nobody trying to emotionally charge me. Um, I am at home freely thinking about how can I give back to this wondrous God who has given so much to me. And if that is all done freely, then guess what? When I come to the worship service on Sunday morning and I put my offering into the offering plate, then I can rejoice because I've done it with joy. It's between me and God. Uh, He and I have decided this is what is appropriate. And I come and I freely give. I don't have to worry about what anybody else gives. I don't have to worry about being manipulated. I give freely. Why? Because I've set it aside at home. I've done that in the privacy of my own place. I've stored it up. And now when I come, I give it freely, joyfully, happily. That's what Paul is saying here. And the last one comes in verses 3 and 4. The last concept is that our giving should be handled wisely. I like this is an interesting one because this one comes from the perspective of the collector and not the giver. Watch this. Look at verses 3 and 4. When I arrive, Paul says, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Here's what Paul's saying. When I get there, Corinthians, I want you guys to pick some people among you that are trustworthy that are reliable, that you have a lot of faith in. And I'm going to take this collection that you guys have gathered up and I'm going to place it in the hands of these trusted individuals and they are the ones that are going to carry it to Jerusalem. Paul says, there is no way you're going to catch me taking this collection by myself to Jerusalem. Why? Because Paul knows there is way too much risk that somebody could say, "Uh uh-huh, we know you, Paul. When you got the money, we know you took some out and stuck it in your pocket. How do we know that what we sent to Jerusalem actually made it to Jerusalem? So Paul says, to avoid any accusation, I'm going to take your people whom you trust with me. They're going to carry the donation. Now, was Paul a trustworthy man? Absolutely. But Paul was also a very wise man. And Paul knew that the wisest thing he could do was to avoid any appearance of evil. And the best way that he could do that is if he never handled the money directly. Friends, that is exactly why we do what we do at Providence. You will notice, if you're around here very long, uh, that the treasurer at Providence is not the same person as the pastor at Providence. There's a very strategic and, I believe, biblical reason for that. It's an act of wisdom. It's to keep the temptation away from the pastor 
to mishandle the funds. Do you remember a guy named Judas? One of the original 12 disciples? What was his downfall? He stuck his hand in the offering plate, didn't he? He was a thief. And so to prevent your pastor's heart from even going that direction, the money is kept separate from the pastorship. Now, does that, does that mean that the, the pastors and the elders can't speak into how the funds are used? Of course not. We, we speak into that often, and we say, here's the, one of the ways that we think that we could use that money. But the actual collection of it and the actual distribution of it is handled by another person. It's biblical. That's a wise move to have a separation of duties so that there can never be an accusation leveled against the leadership of a church saying, you mishandled our funds. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Paul says, now, if you want me to go along, I'll be happy to go along to Jerusalem, but your guys are going to go with me. I'm not going to go by myself. There's going to be more than one person watching over this money, and it's not going to be me. That's what Paul's saying. So Paul says, we handle our contributions wisely. So all those things together, I hope that it gives you some renewed perspective on giving. Is there more that could be said? Well, of course. If ever, one out of every six verses in the Gospels talks about giving, we could be here for weeks and weeks and weeks talking about giving. But maybe this is a kickstart to your own personal study of what is God telling me about money. And here's my prayer. My prayer is that your giving flows out of your worship. And I really hope, I really hope that Providence is a generous church because the members of it are generous givers. I hope that we can be a blessing to the saints, to our leadership, and to our community because our people are generous givers. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I hope that your treasure above all else is your Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think about what all he's done for you, your heart then just bleeds with generosity back to him. And it's reflected in the way that you give. I want to pray for us. And I want to pray that we would be generous because God has been so generous to us. Will you pray with me? God, there is really no words that we can use to describe the gift of your son to us in salvation that you would be willing to give up the greatest treasure you had of your son your one and only son to die for a sinful people who are greedy and money hungry and coveting people And Father, that you would send your son to die so that you could renew our hearts. And as we understand how precious our salvation is, that our hearts would be renewed. And that instead of being greedy and selfish, we become generous 
We become giving. We become humble. And Father, we learn that in whatever way you prosper us, you do so so that we can be a blessing to others. Father, you're not calling us, we know, to necessarily give 100% of everything we have. We, we understand that you, you give us food and clothing. There's a certain element that we need to live on. But we also understand you've given us so much more than that. So I pray that as individuals in this church, that we would be generous givers and that whatever you've called us to give, we would do that freely, worshipfully, joyfully, and that when we gather together and that offering plate passes by, that we would be so grateful to be able to give back just a small, small portion of what you've given to us. Father, and that in the end that you would be pleased. We don't give to impress people. We give in such a way that our right hand doesn't even know what our left hand is doing. But we give in such a way that is pleasing to you. And what's pleasing to you and what's biblical to you is that we would do so with a joyful heart. So I pray that that would be our attitude each and every Sunday when we gather. I pray these things in Jesus' name because of his great work on the cross. Amen.